10 light minutes in all directions is basically the, the extent to which you can mine Bitcoin and still be competitive on chain. Mars is, I think, like, what, 14 minutes away, uh, uh, light minutes away. So Mars is basically already outside of the ability to mine on Bitcoin. That means that Mars will have to have another currency that it is using basically to transact for any economic stuff that happens there. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where my friend Lewis and I interview really interesting people, entrepreneurs, CEOs, investors, creators, artists, sharing the best of what we learned from them with you. In this conversation, we interview Brandon Green. Brandon is the chief of staff at Bitcoin Magazine or BTC Inc. They have a number of companies in the Bitcoin space. It's the company behind the Bitcoin Miami conference that I went to back in June. That was really awesome. They write the articles that are syndicated on Cash App if you ever bought Bitcoin there or pretty much any other major Bitcoin buying platform oftentimes syndicates their articles. So they're a major authority in the Bitcoin space. What Brandon does is he's the assistant to the CEO, among many other roles, such as being the person who coordinated all the awesome speakers for Bitcoin Magazine. So wears a lot of different hats within that organization. He joins us to discuss, first and foremost, why Bitcoin is good in his view, why his company and him personally have dedicated their career to improving the probability that Bitcoin gets adopted in society. We discuss... Uh, kind of Bitcoin versus Ethereum in a, is Bitcoin finally able to do the things that Ethereum was able to do with smart contracts and decentralized finance specifically? Uh, towards the end, we get into some fun ideas like Bitcoin as a space currency. And we also discuss the main lessons from hosting the first 12,000 person event, person events after COVID. It was a fun conversation. A lot of really educational ideas in the beginning and fun out their ideas towards the end. So you can look forward to that. We're going to switch over to it now. Enjoy. Brandon, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Excited to be here. Let's get into it. Heck yeah. Okay. Well, so Brandon, I don't know your exact title at Bitcoin Magazine or at Bitcoin Inc., whichever one you prefer, but I want to get into how you got there. So you graduated from the University of Alabama in 2017. Uh, and I don't know if you interned at Bitcoin Inc. before or, or what's the story there? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the, the quick backstory is I was chemical engineering at Alabama, uh, Roll Tide, and uh, I was in the fellows program there. And I was all set to be um, a, a master brewer trainee at Anheuser-Busch. Uh, but they didn't start until September of the you know year after I graduated. So I had a free summer. And I'm the kind of guy that's like, you know, free summer, that sounds dauntingly boring. Uh, and so I wanted to find something cool that I could do. And uh, David, who is our CEO, uh, who you guys might be talking to later, um, he was a fellow as well and like came down to Alabama to kind of talk to us. And, you know, I talked to him and, and he had like a very interesting and out of left field sort of perspective on a lot of like the current issues. And I found that like... Uh, super you know engaging and also just like uh, uh really kind of pushing the narrative in a lot of ways in like directions that i hadn't really heard people push and i wanted to just learn more uh and so you know i found him afterwards i was like so this bitcoin thing you're you know is, is blockchain gonna be the real thing and he's like no man it's bitcoin uh and i was like well i got a free summer can i come learn about it and he was like sure come on uh and so you know, I did. That was the summer of, of 2017, and uh, I, you know, never sh showed up to my brewery trainee program, uh, and I just went full time into Bitcoin. So, that's that's I guess the short rundown of, of how it happened. So that was 2017. So when you went there, oh, go for it, Kyle. Yeah. No, Lewis, you go ahead. I was gonna say. So when you went there as an intern, 
were you writing for the magazine? Were you doing research? Were you just like fetching coffee? I where ex- did you start? When yeah, you I expected up, to, to show up uh, uh, moving boxes around. Um, I had no clue. I didn't know anything about Bitcoin at the time. Uh, I like had a laughable lack of understanding of what Bitcoin was. And so really I was expecting to be like a set of hands, uh, be able to kind of, you know, plug in wherever I'm helpful and, um, you know, just, just learn basically. And what ended up happening is that very quickly I was writing for the magazine. I was learning, I was writing what I was learning kind of as I was learning it, um, and giving people that perspective because that can be super helpful when you're getting into Bitcoin for the first time. So, you know, I was just, I was doing a little bit of everything, but what I ultimately kind of settled into was this, um, you know, less, less writer, but more of the actual operations side and kind of being the right hand to David, our CEO. And so, you know, uh, we were in this hyper growth phase. You probably have seen the charts of Bitcoin, but 2017 was quite the year. And, uh, along with that came a whole lot of opportunity. And, you know, you, when opportunity comes knocking at your door, you're going to try and kind of uh, accept as much as you possibly can. And every person has its limits in terms of uh, how much they can actually accomplish. So David really needed just additional capacity to be able to just execute on things. And so that's kind of what I brought. And then all of the understanding of Bitcoin and kind of the, the really uh, uh, that level and that kind of schema of thinking came after you know long hours of working and understanding exactly what this entire uh ecosystem is and it's a lot let me tell you it's a lot and it's changing a lot too the the first five months i got i guess so you start in the summer and then december of 2017 is when we had the huge run-up or that entire time was a bull market right so what was it like what was the price when you started and and what was it i guess it went to twenty thousand, right yeah, that's right. I uh, so I started. I think the price was around like seventeen hundred dollars a Bitcoin. Um, you know, just just laughably low. And I thought it was crazy high. I was like, should I even you know put money into this because it's already at all time highs? Like, what's going on? Uh, and you know, obviously in, in hindsight, and what I learned was that absolutely, you know, this is the the best performing asset and the best investment. Uh, this is not financial advice. The best investment you know in the history of the world. So uh, you know. That was kind of uh, a realization that I had. And then, you know, in terms of what was going on at the time, uh, I don't know if you guys were were too plugged in on what was happening, but it was a historic moment in Bitcoin where um, there was a real sort of debate happening about how do you scale this thing? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, this is a a global. Yeah, this is the block wars, right? So, so, uh, you know, this is a global payments platform. Uh, that can only support, you know, a few transactions per second when you're trying to onboard uh, 7 billion plus people, how on earth do you allow them all to be able to use this thing and not get priced out? And so, you know, you had kind of these two different uh, segments of the, the community. One was a lot bigger than the other, uh, but that were, one was saying basically, you know, we think that we should just make the Bitcoin blocks bigger. And the other one was saying we need to just move the bulk of transactions, their small transactions, completely off chain, and then just cryptographically secure it back onto the the main chain uh, through kind of you know some some really cool cryptography. But you know uh, those were the the two kind of warring factions, and ended up splitting Bitcoin into two different chains, uh, where you had you know the Bitcoin the main chain, and then this kind of offshoot that just wanted to expand the block size. And the the funny part about where I was is that I was actually learning about it, and so I was writing about it. 
Uh, and so, you know, a few of the articles that we put out, you know, I actually wrote as just a, a new intern noob uh, uh, trying to figure out what was going on and then just put it into plain person's uh, uh, layman's words so that people could understand what was happening. Yeah, I'm sure that those times were nuts. Um, and looking back on it, um, even more so. But so we talked a little bit about how, like, Bitcoin is the all time best investment, like, and it might be, and I think you know the number going up and it being a way to get rich is something that's attractive and a way for to bring people in. But why do you think that Bitcoin is good outside of the financial um, gain that you get out of putting money into it? What what economic problem in the world do you think it solves? And I know that you probably think it's more than just one problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you wanted to, to go, I think, to the core of why I'm passionate about it, it's because if you look at the world today, there are more people who have access to uh, the internet than have access to running water. Um, the, the, the ability to access the internet is hyperscalable. You have Elon Musk right now shooting satellites into the sky uh, that will give global coverage of internet to the entire world using you know just a handful of satellites uh, or like uh, you know satellites here on Earth. And it, that thing will scale to where, you know, it's, it costs basically nothing to connect to the Internet. So that problem is getting solved. That's a much easier problem to solve than a lot of the other infrastructure problems that we have, you know, getting the world from a third world country, uh, you know, a place from the third world to be a developed world. And so, you know, what does it unlock when you're able to connect to the Internet? Well, one thing that it doesn't unlock without Bitcoin is it doesn't unlock, unlock the, the access to financial tools. And, uh, you know, if you're going to be someone who is, you know, pulling yourself out of poverty, uh, you need to be able to access debt, be able to have uh, a currency that you hold that uh, can appreciate or doesn't just hyperinflate right underneath your feet while you're trying to do basic commerce. You have to, you know, creating a one global uh, value layer uh, is incredibly interesting because now all of the value that's created in the world can be realized in Bitcoin. And so that means that people who are, you know, creating cool companies in the US uh, are benefiting folks who are living and using Bitcoin in uh, South Africa or Uganda or, you know, Vietnam, wherever, because all that value accrues to the same asset. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a really weird kind of uh, mental shift where ultimately what you're creating is you're creating one value system for the entire world. And that aligns incentives in a really interesting way and allows, you know, all sorts of people to be pulled out of poverty. And I think, you know, some of the aspects of Bitcoin that people like to, you know, knock, for instance, uh, uh, the mining side of things, right? That's where you have all these computers that are, you know, people like to say solving math problems. It's not exactly correct, but they're guessing random hashes. And uh, by doing so, unlocking a block, getting block reward, uh, it's very energy intensive, right? You've probably heard about that. Well, what that really is, is doing is it's putting a cost to create new Bitcoin. And so that means that you don't have miners or folks who are, you know, building this chain uh, who are enriching themselves with new Bitcoins. And instead, it, it immediately requires that Bitcoin to kind of circulate. And so, you know, while you're also creating this, you know, deflationary currency or, you know, non-inflationary currency would be another way to look at it. What you're also doing is you're kind of preventing a ongoing centralization risk where ultimately, like what you see in the U.S. and a lot of other developed countries that have, you know, these inflation issues is you see this, you know, uh, great 
uh, centralization of wealth and power and influence because, you know, you have this really easy way to kind of position yourselves towards where the money spout, the money spigot is, you know, for lack of a better term. And uh, uh, you can just get, you know, enriched by that. You don't have that with Bitcoin, or at least not to the same extent due to the mining aspect. So I know that's a bit tangential and, and a bit rambly, but, uh, you know, those are a couple of the things that I think that uh, immediately attracted my interest when I looked at Bitcoin for the first time. But why is it good? Why is it why is it good for humanity? I understand yeah, that those so, are interesting you know, features. Like it's all it's all I mean it's an incredible technology. Like it's a exponential technology, but why is it good for humanity? Yeah, I mean it's a uh, I feel like the question is almost a Schopenhauer-esque, right? It's uh the question of is there anything that's good for humanity or, you know, is there this uh what is it? Like a uh, um like uh oh shoot what's the the term it's something like a philosophical pessimism right that says that uh all things that are created are not good they're either bad or they're not bad right uh so you know that's one way to look at it what i would say though is that you know the idea of being able to uh provide banking solutions or access to mm -hmm. financial tools for people who otherwise wouldn't have them all around the world uh and all they need is an internet connection uh is the, the most powerful anti-poverty program you could possibly dream up uh and so just in and of itself if you want to find a way to get money in the pockets of people who otherwise wouldn't have access to money bitcoin is the the you know greatest invention ever um and then everything else is you know i would say dressing on top of you know kind of that that core value add mm -hmm. yeah i think i come back to the um I don't I don't know his first name Antonopoulos the the guy with the crazy Andreas. Andreas Antonopoulos and how he says like you know when he's explaining Bitcoin to people it's really really hard to explain it to Americans and people in Europe but when he goes to somewhere like El Salvador or Venezuela they get it immediately because they are doing all these remittances like some X percentage of their of their GDP is made up of remittances and when they do those remittances back to their country you know 40% of it is just taken it's gone and so uh, when you give those people access to their money that they earn with their time it changes everything for them and then on the other side of that i think is the problem of central banks and the the money spigot that you're talking about like it, i think it is a problem that anyone or any entity in the world has access to subverting like the natural order of capital coming from either like leverage and and investment or um or time investment or labor and because something exists outside of that natural law like there's a problem and it, it leads to bad outcomes and and so i think um that central banks and just like the pain of of these people not being able to control their money are, are two things that um, two reasons why Bitcoin is good for humanity. Yeah, if I could drill into the kind of that last thing that you said, you know, uh, if you just take a step back and look at this from fresh eyes and, and I were to tell you that, you know, uh, uh, the way that we value the world today, a.k.a., you know, through the U.S. dollar, our ability to price things right is controlled by basically a couple people and and you know your ability to 
uh, uh, make financial decisions for yourself that are, you know, have a, a multi-year time horizon, your ability to, uh, you know, just plan your future ultimately rests on the judgment call of a couple folks who you will never meet. You'll never understand what all their decisions they make are. Uh, you'll never be able to audit the, the amount of money or, you know, what sort of money they're, they're putting in any given time, you know, and, and the, the levers that they're even pulling aren't even directly related to the ultimate outcome that they they're wanting to create, right? They only have a couple levers and those are supposed to somehow properly adjust kind of this, this economic supply of, of value that we have for the world. So, you know, it, on its face, it's a, it's an incredibly crazy and, and ridiculous concept. And the only reason why it exists is because it was necessary early on because you needed the ability to trust that, uh, you know, the money that you were using had value and for the U S and other countries too, but you know, we're in the U S we'll talk about the U S it was the fact that, you know, the government said it had value that everyone could, you know, accept and feel comfortable in holding their value in the U S dollar. But I think that, you know, we're beyond that both as, as, you know, citizens of kind of the world and as just, you know, where we're headed as a civilization, uh, we have to be beyond that sort of one central force telling you what's, what's real, what's valuable. Yeah. There's a, a lot to unpack there and it's very, very, very interesting. I want to shift gear slightly and go to something you said a little bit earlier. Uh, so part of your role at the magazine and the corporation is assisting with planning the conference, the, the Bitcoin conference, uh, which I went to this past couple weeks ago in Miami, really, really enjoyed it. And one announcement I saw about Bitcoin, uh, cause you made this analogy about how, you know, it's difficult to provide water infrastructure everywhere, but we can just beam internet to everyone. But Bitcoin is actually being involved with the charity water foundation. And that was a big announcement made at the conference. Do you mind elaborating on what that was and how Bitcoin is being used actually to assist with water in addition to these like financial implications? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and background on myself, I, I was actually director of content for the conference. So all the speakers, all the content, everything, uh, uh, that all flowed through me. Uh, it was a ton of fun. Uh, I'm glad you got to see it. Uh, you know, I, I hope you didn't have to wait in line too long on day one. Um, but you know, it was, it was a crazy line. We weren't ready for that, but, uh, so, so talking about charity water a little bit, uh, uh, Scott Harrison runs this nonprofit called charity water. They're one of the first nonprofits to accept Bitcoin. They accept it back in 2013 or 2014. Uh, the person who sends them Bitcoin is Tony Hawk. And uh, he immediately sells the Bitcoin uh, that he gets for dollars and then uses that to, to build wells in Africa uh, for folks, you know, who don't have access to, to potable drinking water. Right. Um, that Bitcoin has since basically 100 X in value. And had he held on to it, he would have been able to do 100 times kind of the benefit uh, that he could have had uh, in Africa. And, you know, it wasn't like he desperately, direly needed to spend that money right there. It's a very well-funded charity. They have the ability to kind of take these financial decisions and, and, you know, try and execute on them. It's just that, you know, at the time he didn't understand what, you know, a global store of value meant in terms of being able to, you know, store your value and, and grow your value. So, you know, uh, uh, Scott basically created this, this new donor advised fund that uh, the folks who invest into uh, or who send Bitcoin as uh, you know, part of their gift or donation to the charity, um, 
there is an understood uh, uh, ask from the investor that the charity hold on to that Bitcoin for five years, uh, which would basically grant it another uh, cycle in, you know, a having cycle for Bitcoin, which we can get into later. But uh, effectively, you know, an assumed another price run. And so there would be some amount of appreciation on that Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, I think that he succeeded in getting his hundred Bitcoins that he was looking for. Uh, and now he'll be holding on to those for the next five years. And uh, once he's able to do that, then he'll be using that basically to help provide potable drinking water all across Africa. And I mean, you know, a hundred Bitcoins in uh, five years could be, you know, maybe, gosh, it could be upwards of a hundred million dollars. I mean, it really could. So, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a really great case study in terms of, you know, the kind of good that that sort of capital and, and just the ability to have a store of value can do for the world. Yeah, it's an incredible story. I wonder what it would be worth if he had held on to all of it that he'd ever gotten. Um, and I hope that at the end of the five years, he's, he's able to deploy that and, um, and do a lot of good for a lot of people. What from the conference are you most proud of? Oh, gosh. Uh, so, you know, I'll answer kind of the, the cheesy answer and then I'll answer, you know, specifically in my lane. Uh, I'm proud of the team, right? Like uh, uh, we were, none of us are experts at throwing a conference. We had thrown uh, a 2019 conference that had like 1,800 people there and this one had 12,000 people there, right? So we were all just making it up as we went. I mean, we had no clue uh, what we were doing. Uh, and we really executed and with the minor hiccups, like the lines, uh, like, you know, not enough bathrooms, that kind of stuff. Um, it really was a success, uh, and, and on a large scale, very, very successful. So, uh, you know, that would be what I'm most proud of. And then specifically in the content, um, I would say that, you know, we had this great surprise of the El Salvador announcement that we were holding on to keeping secret, you know, doing our best to be tight lipped about because Jack asked us, he was like, please just don't, don't tell anyone about this beforehand. And we were like, okay, we, we won't. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it was, it was that moment of being able to deliver maybe some of the biggest news in the history of Bitcoin that, uh, for those who, who don't know what, what we're talking about, uh, El Salvador announced that they would be making Bitcoin legal tender for the, the comp, uh, for the, the country. So, uh, you know, that, that happened at the conference. It was a really emotional time. Uh, uh, people cheered, people cried, people laughed. Uh, you know, it, it was, people applauded, you know, standing ovation. So that probably was very cathartic for me and, and it definitely uh, made it feel like kind of everything was worth it because we were able to just create this platform for this giant step forward uh, for a global currency. Yeah, I was in the room for that announcement and it was absolute insanity when that like was revealed. I mean, the, the buildup was insane and then when the tension was released and everyone just it was made. I mean, you you couldn't hear the president's speech. Like you could tell what was going on, but you couldn't hear it just because like the applause had started so loud before and like the audio was overpowered. It was just such an insane amount of energy uh, when that happened. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I was like, you know, uh, so most of our team didn't know the announcement beforehand. And so, you know, I was like telling them so that they knew, you know, what to tweet out about it or, you know, uh, to make sure the journalists from Bitcoin magazine were all there, but like they didn't know what was happening. And so they were all guessing to me, like behind, you know, behind the scenes being like, is it this? Could it be this? No one guessed this because it was like a step function higher of like an announcement than anyone was expecting when we were touting this as like a huge announcement. So 
you know, it, it, I really am proud of it, and uh, you know, definitely proud of the work that, that Jack Mallers is doing, and he's who made the announcement. Um, and, and yeah, I think that you know, this is the start of something really big, uh, and we're just beginning to see, you know, the the stage that's being set by this announcement. We're not even seeing the effects yet. We're just seeing the the buildup to and what this is actually countries look like. have piled in, right? Yeah, 100%. So we've got, you know, Paraguay that's putting forth uh, legislation. I think it's July now, so like this month. Um, I think that Panama has talked about it. Brazil has had some some legislators that have they've talked about it. You know, it it makes total sense. And in hindsight, it should have been obvious that the first countries to adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender or, uh, you know, some sort of currency that they're going to uh, involve with their government. It would be South American countries where the remittance market is so huge, especially into the U.S., where, you know, there's at the moment this crazy amount of money printing and uncertainty with what the dollar is going to look like tomorrow. So, you know, in hindsight, it was inevitable uh, to pull, you know, a quote from old Elon Musk. But, uh, yeah, I just think that this is the domino that's just going to knock what over the entire world the, eventually. What um, tax implications? So I know that if like foreign currencies cannot be taxed or you can't get capital gains on, on foreign currencies. Have you heard anything else about that? Because I read just like one tweet and I've been telling people about it and I'm not sure if it's actually true or not. Yeah, I think the, the funny thing is like, no one's exactly sure if it's true or not. You know, we're gonna have to see some actual, uh, probably court, you know, uh, decidings in order to, to confirm. But by the letter of the law, it should mean that it's non-taxable now for capital gains, at least when used as a currency and not as an investment. You can still tax, you know, Forex trading, uh, right? It's over like a certain amount. I don't know what the amount is off the top of my head, but, you know, there, there is still capital gains tax on Forex trading. You just have to go over the threshold that, you know, it, you know, mm. crosses over in order to be taxable. Hmm. So one question I have is... Not as big of a narrative on the main stage at the conference, but a lot of energy for it, like in the conference area, are things like stacks, things like smart contracts on Bitcoin, kind of like Bitcoin sidechains, Bitcoin uh, smart con uh, DeFi was the word I was looking for. What is your take on that? Because that's a, in like the crypto space at large, that's a really big division. It, one in terms of narratives, in terms of capital allocation, in terms of developer resources and attention. Uh, so what do you think as Bitcoin, is Bitcoin kind of like realized its usefulness and will kind of stay there and just realize its potential as the world reserve currency? Or is Bitcoin truly have advantages to the Ethereum, Solana, this kind of ecosystem for smart contracts and DeFi applications? Yeah, uh, really, really good question. I didn't realize you guys uh, were so well versed in, in Bitcoin and crypto. This is this is fun. Uh, I don't know, you know, what sort of conversation we we're going to have, but I'm excited that we kind of get to dive a little bit deeper. So, you know, um, um, when okay, great question to talk about kind of smart contracts on Bitcoin. That's uh, definitely being built right now. Um, Stacks is Block Stacks. You know, is a smart contract platform layer two. Uh, you have RSK. You have. Uh, uh, you know, I guess those are kind of the main two RGBs being built out. Uh, you've got uh, Liquid and, you know, so there's a lot of different smart contract capabilities being built kind of layer two on Bitcoin. It can't happen on layer one because the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin is that the, the smart contract scripting language on layer one of Bitcoin isn't sophisticated enough uh, or it, it's so data intensive to try and actually do a smart contract that it's just not worth it, right? So 
you know, something like Ethereum kind of emerged as a layer one smart contract layer. It's obviously gotten tons of, you know, investment and developer acumen and, you know, just uh, an entire ecosystem has emerged. This whole DeFi narrative has come. Uh, you definitely see what looks like a, a very successful ecosystem. And, you know, I'm not uh, uh, and our company. Our company is Bitcoin only. We're Bitcoin focused. We're not anti other cryptos. Uh, we just think that ultimately like Bitcoin is the signal, everything else, you know, can have innovation. There can be, you know, these, these crazy kind of jumps, but that there's nothing that Bitcoin can't absorb onto its own value layer. And that ultimately the biggest innovation was the ability to basically have a decentralized currency. I mean, that's, that's the 98% and everything else is just kind of interesting, you know, bells and whistles to put on top of it. So let's look at, you know, DeFi, for instance, right? Uh, DeFi is kind of this decentralized finance, what it stands for. Uh, the idea is to do, you know, things like permissionless lending, uh, permissionless leverage, which is really what the lending's for, right? It's generally getting leverage on, you know, your ETH token or, or you know, the Solana, whatever it is, right? Um, and so, you know, all of that stuff is, is interesting. Uh, and it's really cool that it's being built out. I think Uniswap is probably the coolest uh, project that's been, you know, rolled out in recent uh, years. And so, you know, that's awesome. That can all be built on Bitcoin now uh, using a layer two. And ultimately, Bitcoin should be the the value token that's being transacted through those things. So it's like, what are you getting lev leverage on? Well, you're getting leverage on Bitcoin. What are you lending? Oh, you're lending out Bitcoin. Uh, you know, like that's, that's where Bitcoin plugs in. Um, and so, you know, does Ethereum need to... Uh, does Ethereum need to exist, uh, uh, you know, long-term? I don't think so. I really don't. And, you know, I'm not saying that as like a hater. I'm not saying that as like a, a non-believer that, you know, some of the things that they've created is valuable. I'm just saying it from the, the standpoint of like, you know, the, the real innovation is the ability to decentralize a currency and that it, anything else, if it's open source, it can be built over onto to that decentralized currency onto Bitcoin. And so that's where I think the entire market's going to head. Uh, the, I'm getting long winded here, but the last thing that I'll mention on this is that right now you see most of DeFi yields coming through basically mm. new governance tokens that are being invented, uh, that people are then yield farming and selling for, you know, uh, a stable coin or for ETH or something else. Right. And so it's not really, um, it's not sustainable, at least not at these crazy yields that you see of like, you know. 10,000% uh, annual or, you know, even like 200%. I mean, it'll collapse down very quickly to probably something closer to like a four to 8% uh, annual yield on basically anything. And uh, uh, the only thing that's keeping that alive is, is more and more of these other tokens that are supposed to be governance tokens for some other platform that does the same thing as another platform with a slight twist. And everyone's going to FOMO into that token, which means it has value when people get it farmed out to them. So, you know, uh, a lot of that, I'm a little bit more um, skeptical and, and, you know, not as excited about. But, you know, a lot of people are making a lot of money and those people are going to stick on the ecosystem uh, that made them that money. Yeah, that so was what I was it, it'll have some real staying power so Yeah, in the long run. And you can interpret that how you'd like to if it's a winner take all dynamic or if it's not. And that's. I'll let you riff on that for, for a second here. Yeah, I'll, I'll be quick on this one. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's ultimately winner take all and Bitcoin will, will win and take all, but Ethereum will continue to exist and it'll still have value. 
it's just that value will be denominated in Bitcoin. Uh, and so, you know, the, the ETH trading pair will be ETH over BTC, not ETH over USD, right? And, and so from that perspective, ETH will continue to exist. I don't know if it'll be as valuable because there's not these uh, uh, unfederated um, ways to wrap Bitcoin onto Ethereum. I think actually Ren BTC maybe uh, is unfeder unfederated now, so a little bit more trustless. But what you really need is you need a way for, you know, if I have Bitcoin sitting on the Bitcoin chain, I can send it onto the Ethereum chain and receive some wrapped Bitcoin on there without any risk of any part of that being seized by a government, by a bad actor, by a hacker. You know, I need it to be totally permissionless, auditable, and and uh, bug free, and you know that takes a lot of uh, you know a lot of work, a lot of trust right now, and uh, uh, I just don't see that being you know a robust aspect of the market yet. Thanks, Brandon, for that nuanced answer. Uh, my next question is actually surrounding Tether. And for those who don't know, Tether is a stable coin that a lot of people use to buy Bitcoin. But my question is, is the Tether conspiracy just just regular old FUD or is it the end of Bitcoin as we know it today? That's a great question. Um, I'll give you two different answers that seem counter, uh, but they're actually not. Uh, one, the Tether stuff is complete FUD and two, Tether will eventually collapse and uh, be worthless. So, you know, here's here's the, the most important thing to understand with Tether is that, yes, there's a lot of obscurity. Um, but if these guys were bad actors, they could have run away with so much money before anyone was paying any attention at all. And they would have gotten away with it. And they could be sitting on private islands right now. And they could have, you know, yanked the rug and, and like it would be game over. No one could stop them. Uh, like they've succeeded, right? They didn't do it. They could have done it in 2014. They could have done it in 2015, 2016. Uh, they didn't. So, you know, we we, we know these guys a little bit. Uh, uh, you know, everything that we've talked to them about, like they are they are good actors. They're like trying to build an interesting stable coin. Um, specifically with some of the reserve stuff that you hear about, you know, I couldn't tell you, obviously I'm not uh, either an accountant or a lawyer, right? I can't tell you what the the reserves that they hold actually are and, and amount to uh or why you know it's so heavy into uh paper what i will say is that um you know in 2018 they had uh around i think it was like 800 million dollars sitting in an offshore bank account because no banks will bank crypto companies including ours right like we're a media company in bitcoin right and no banks would bank us because we had Bitcoin in our name. Uh, it is just, it's a fact, it's a matter of the ecosystem. It's why when Brian Brooks was the OCC comptroller, one of the biggest things that he did is he said that banks are not allowed to discriminate co on companies based on whether they touch or are involved in the crypto ecosystem, right? It was a huge move because up until then, you had folks like Tether who had to get in bed with some you know, questionable banks that you didn't really know what other lines of business the bank had, but they were willing to take your money and, and hold it for you. Right. And so it was like, let's, you know, like everyone needs access to banks. If you're going to be, you know, holding reserves and us dollars for your tether, right? Like you have to have a bank account somewhere. And so this bank got seized by the, the, uh, uh, courts in New York 
and uh, they lost some around $800 million worth of their U.S. dollar reserves. And this was back when, like, you know, maybe Tether was uh, a $3 billion uh, uh, asset. So, you know, that's almost a third of all of their reserves getting just seized right there. Uh, well, when that happens, they are not fully backed anymore, right? Like, the you know, they don't have that money. They don't know if they're ever going to get that money back or, you know, if it's going to be wrapped up in whatever uh, this bank did. And so, you know... In that moment was basically when they changed the wording on their website to be like uh, totally backed or mostly backed uh, uh, by dollar or like cash equivalents, right? And so then, you know, I am no sleuth at all, but it was pretty easy to back out that, you know, their other company that they have is Bitfinex, which is an exchange. And they basically took a loan from Bitfinex uh, uh, to be able to cover their reserves. That was like the cash equivalent. And it's like an IOU back to Bitfinex and, you know, they okayed it because they run both companies and like that's shady, which I get, but it was also like a desperate time. They had to be back. So it was like, you know, this is what we can do without any banking relationships overnight, basically. Uh, so, you know, they did what they could. It was a bad situation. That's when all the tether FUD really started blowing up. Right. And uh, uh, what's interesting is that, you know, it was clear to me and it was clear, you know, to anyone in the industry, like a lot of this is unfounded. Uh now, why do they sit in uh, this all the paper, you know, whatever it's called, uh, uh, and not U.S. dollar anymore? I have no clue. I couldn't tell you. Uh, but I would assume that it's out of necessity or because it's, you know, just a better way of holding the, the dollars uh, than it is about there being some sort of issue with Tether's solvency. Um, Long-winded part there. Now, what, the other part, uh, sorry, I, I keep cutting out, but... Uh, the other part of it is Tether eventually will fail, right? Uh, they like they have too many centralized points of failure to not fail. Um, and you know, a quote that people kind of use is "Every empire falls, every business fails," right? So Tether will eventually fail, <laughs> just like everything else, and uh, except Bitcoin. And you know, that's just an inevitability, and it may happen soon because you know, ultimately, when you're dealing with all of this banking stuff, like having to jump from bank to bank all the time having to constantly, you know, be the best accountants in the room to be able to make sure that your, your reserves are fully backed, all that kind of stuff. Like, and, it, and it's the US dollar, like it's, it's gonna go to zero eventually anyway. So all that being said, however it fails, uh, I'm not worried about that being a systemic risk to Bitcoin because Bitcoin is ultimately, I mean, orders of magnitude, but way bigger than Tether could ever hope to be. And uh, it's, it's not relying on Tether in order to succeed. There's no printing of Tether to buy Bitcoin uh, that, that isn't, you know, backed by other cash. Like, it's just, it's not happening. That's the FUD. So long, long term, it will fail. Uh, obviously, I missed a lot of that because of, uh, oh, yeah. well, because I had to refresh, you, uh, but have some trouble. Right. I, I will, I will head. play it back. I think, you know, it's still unclear to me whether or not um, the printing of Tether is, is not holding the price of Bitcoin up in the short term. I agree that that Tether blowing up today wouldn't crash Bitcoin forever. And I think it'd be a great time to buy in for sure. Um, and that it is FUD. But I think there's a lot of dishonesty going on. However, the very first thing you said about how, like, um, you know, they could have walked away with so much money already. That's the thing that I keep coming back to. It's like, if they were like, it just doesn't make any sense from an incentive standpoint. If they were trying to screw everybody over, they could have walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars already. Um, right. The second thing, the the second millions. piece of FUD though, 
is about uh, this sort of, I feel like it's a narrative violation from um, Satoshi's original vision of, you know, peer to peer cash. I think, you know, it is, it's, it's now digital gold and I subscribe to that, that narrative, but I, I think that, um, you know, it's a, a little incongruent. And so I wanted to hear what you had to say about the, um, about this divergence from the original vision of Satoshi. So uh, uh, shout out to a guy named Alan Farrington. Uh, he's brilliant. He is the emoji of a squirrel on, or like not an emoji. Uh, it's Bullwinkle the squirrel, I think, on, on Twitter is his avatar. Um, he wrote a really great piece. Uh, he's written a, a lot of really great pieces, but called uh, uh, Wit Wittgenstein's uh, Money. And uh, there's like the old, you know, I, I don't know if it's really a, true story but like Wittgenstein talking to Copernicus talking to you know folks who were talking about you know uh, the you know whether the sun revolves around the earth or the earth revolves around the sun right uh, and you know uh, I'm gonna I'm butchering the story but the point of it is that Wittgenstein comes out and says look uh, I know that the sun revolves around the earth right you know I would never question that sort of uh, uh, understood fact but like imagine what it would look like if the earth did revolve around the sun and how would that look? And like, you know, let's walk, let's just talk through that and see what it would look like. And so he kind of uh, takes the same idea and he's like, all right, uh, of course, Bitcoin will never be, you know, a global currency, a decentralized currency. Right. But if you did have a decentralized currency emerge totally permissionlessly, like no government backed it, what would that necessarily have to look like? Okay, and where I'm going with this is that right now, like uh, uh, when you look at kind of what does uh, a currency need to be, uh, there's kind of like a trope that, you know, has to be a store of value, a unit of account, a medium of exchange, uh, and like I think a fourth one that no one really cares about, right? But So the idea is like uh, it needs to solve like all of these different problems or like have all these different functions. And I think what we're beginning to realize, or at least what I'm beginning to realize, is that as uh, a decentralized form of money uh, occurs, it kind of has to take each of those use cases step by step. And so in order to be a, a medium of exchange, it first has to be a store of value. And so what we're really watching is the store of value phase of Bitcoin unfold, where it doesn't make sense to want to spend your Bitcoin if it's going to be worth so much more tomorrow. And it's not so much more because it's a deflationary currency. It's so much more because the amount of users, the growth in the network, the, you know, the adoption curve of it, like we're still on the early end of it. And so, you know, there will be some, you know, uh, uh, day in the future where it is fully adopted or, you know, approximately fully adopted. And in that point, you know, you, you have uh, still a store of value and it will still go up in value, but it's not going to be skyrocketing with crazy volatility and, you know, all the stuff that we're seeing right now with kind of the speculative instrument of it, where people are betting on it becoming the ultimate currency, right? There will be a moment where it is. So, so that's the phase that we're in right now. And that, in my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's opinions, if you kind of look at, well, how does it have to emerge, right? What, it has to be the store of value first. And then that doesn't preclude it from later being the medium of exchange. And so what really matters is like, all right, I, I count Bitcoin as a store of value. Kyle, you count Bitcoin as a store of value. So we could transact in Bitcoin now 
without either one of us needing to settle onto you know a US dollar layer because we both see it as a store of value. If I saw it as a store of value and you didn't, then I could still you know use it as a medium exchange, but you'll you'll be converting it in the back end immediately to dollars, and like that's a less useful instrument. Uh, and so you know that exists today. There's tons of places where you can you know exchange Bitcoin and it's being you know uh, sold to dollars on the back end without anyone noticing. And that's just like a, again, it's like it's part of the step towards hyper Bitcoinization when everyone's using it as a medium of exchange that's, and a unit. Of uh, no, I so, think that's extremely interesting. Uh, uh, and, is that a, is that a good uh, answer? answer is there something that you know I'm not hitting before. on? Um, and then I'd add to that that you know if Bitcoin is to become a currency. Right, like currencies are the monetary premium, if I'm understanding this correctly, is like the value of a currency relative to its intrinsic value or something. So like the value of printed paper with dollar signs on it relative to like the utility of the paper. And there's a price discovery phase where that curve of like ha happens and then it eventually, as Brandon's saying, settles in. And like, so you could say that Bitcoin's in the price discovery phase and like until it realizes it settles at a normal monetary premium because I mean you got to think of the monetary premium of paper relative to like it's or of paper money relative to its actual intrinsic value <laughs> please is if, it not if you on want yet? Me to put my hyper bull <laughs> hat on right here I would say that the real price discovery phase yeah I know right uh, the real price discovery phase is everyone coming to the same realization that I have that Bitcoin is the future global currency uh, and you know what does that look like in terms of price? Well, it looks like there's 21 million bitcoins. It looks like infinity divided by 21 million. I mean, we're talking about all the value in the entire world uh, divided by 21 million. I mean, it's like value is being created constantly by us interacting, by us creating new things, by new inventions. Uh, uh, you know, it's literally infinity divided by 21 million. So that's that's the realization people have to get to. That's the ultimate game. Uh, and I would say that vast majority of people uh, who even know about Bitcoin still just see it as kind of a speculative asset. If that's true, like, and and you take it to its its extreme, so like, let's say it's 2200, like the year is 2200, we're a space-faring civilization. How is Bitcoin transacted amongst a space-faring civilization? And, and also... How locationally dependent is Bitcoin? Does it have to be on? Do you think two parties have to be on Earth in order for it to transact, or can you be? Could it be you know two spaceships far? Like how how do you think that works? And is it There's limited by? Would it be limited by the the speed of light? Yeah. So <laughs> this is a question that I feel like I've thought too much about uh, in terms of you know where most people spend their time. Uh, there's a guy, Daruv Bansal, uh, he's CTO at Unchained Capital. He has some great articles on this. Uh, and it's all stuff like, I'm not going to take away from him because he encapsulates it so well, but it's all stuff that like I thought about and kind of arrived at the same conclusions without having read it first, right? And so what you see, is, first off, no one's going to space with gold Definitely bars not fiat. or you know, fiat currency. There's, no one's taking coins. That's weight. That's like, you know, that's crazy to think that anyone's going. So the money will be digital. When we're a seafaring uh, uh, civilization, the money has to be digital. Uh, what you have right now with Bitcoin is uh, uh, this, this whole mining aspect, right? And uh, when you mine a block, uh, let's, let's take the actual download speed and make it negligible. Let's make it zero, right? So as soon as you receive the block, you have it. It's fully downloaded, right? Uh, 
there is a 10 minute block time on average in between blocks. So basically uh, you need the, the previous block in order to mine the next one, right? So if I'm gonna mine or you know confirm transactions, I need to get like the this next block as soon as possible so that I can start mining the next one and like maybe potentially get it, right? Maybe potentially win that, that contest and mine the next block, right? So if it takes 10 minutes per uh, block, then, and I'm 11 minutes away, then I'm gonna be at a crazy disadvantage that basically I can't mine on the same chain because as soon as I get this block, there's already a second block being put through the, the Bitcoin pipeline. You mean all the rest of these minutes? nodes that are closer to what we'll call the center of hash. This so yeah, it'd be like 11 minute, light minutes. Okay, yeah. keep going. <laughs> uh, uh, 11, you know, information minutes. Yeah, well, so, so yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, if I'm 11 light minutes away, uh, I effectively cannot mine on the chain because uh, uh, the blocks are, you know, being found before I can even receive them. Like the next one's already being found, right? So uh, uh, what this means is uh, uh, basically, you know, you have a 10 minute horizon in all directions from the center of hash. And let's just call the center of hash earth broadly, because, you know, the amount of time that it takes for information to go from the US to China is like negligible in terms of finding the next block. So uh, uh, 10 minutes, 10 light minutes in all directions is basically the, the extent to which you can mine Bitcoin and still be competitive on chain. Mars is, I think, like, what, 14 minutes away, uh, uh, light minutes away. So Mars is basically already outside of the ability to mine on Bitcoin. That means that Mars will have to have another currency uh, that it is using basically to transact for any economic stuff that happens there uh, necessarily. Either that or you're going to have uh, a, effectively a war take place. Um, where you have, you know, there's hash power on Mars, there's hash power on Earth, both are mining Bitcoin, and, uh, uh, you know, they're going to then mine as many blocks in a row as they can, and then send those blocks to Earth, where, you know, then they'll have the longest chain uh, longer than Earth, and so then their blocks get accepted, this is all really complicated, uh, but basically, like, it's, it's just a war that would take place. So let's, let's now assume that these two planets would have kind of each their own Bitcoin. What you would then need is you would then need a settlement layer between those two uh, blockchains, those two different Bitcoins. And so what we then get into is effectively creating a separate solar system wide blockchain where I would say that you would expect the uh, uh, the block time to be somewhere on the, uh, uh, you know, on the scale of like a light year. Or, you know, even not, not a light year, but like basically the time that it takes for light to get from the sun to Pluto, right? And, and so then you can mine on this chain both on Mars and on Earth and on Jupiter and on the asteroid belt and, you know, wherever else you kind of are mining. Um, and you won't be kind of disconnected from this, this settlement layer or have it, you know, speed off without your ability to have, you know, confirmed transactions or have input. So then uh, uh, ultimately what you have is, you know, uh, a, a Mars chain, a Bitcoin on Earth chain, a solar system chain. All right, what if we become intergalactic? Well, now you need uh, uh, now you need a chain that's a settlement layer across uh, uh, entire galaxies. So then the block time on that is going to be light years and light years and light years. It'll take li more people will be born and die in the amount of time that it takes for uh, you know, a block to be found in, uh, in this chain 
than uh, have existed in all of civilization. Like, I mean, it's it's crazy to kind of get to these levels uh, of of you know what this would look like. And I think the coolest part, and I'll stop rambling here, but like the coolest part is what you're really creating is like a heartbeat for information and and value to settle. And so you have like this galactic heartbeat that every you know. Uh, every, let's say, thousand years, there's another block that gets found, right? Uh, and then you have, uh, you know, the heartbeat of our solar system that is, you know, every, let's say, 200 days, another block gets found. And then you have the heartbeat of uh, Earth, where it's every 10 minutes, a block gets found. And it's like that sort of pulsating, like, uh, uh, ecosystem of how value gets settled across all of these different chains with all these different time horizons. And uh, the last thing I'll say on this is that maybe the thing that we should be looking for in terms of uh, uh, extraterrestrial life and extraterrestrial intelligence is a block getting propagated from another planet. Uh, and it's just flying right by us. And we can either, you know, see it and, and you know, recognize it and confirm I'm, it. Or I'm it'll just really glad that I asked that question. So, there's um, your. Uh, it has uh, me thinking about the the um, the proof of work. There, there's got to be a little arbitrage opportunity at like nine and a half, like nine point nine nine light minutes away, because it, you could like. I don't really know. Maybe like you could send back. Because the way the proof of work works is that when you solve the problem it sends the that solution out to every node in the network right and so if every node in the network were to mm -hmm. get that after i'm rambling i mean obviously i have no idea what i'm talking about but there, there's got to be something interesting at the at those intersection points so what you could do, what what it would like, uh, mm -hmm. what would make sense is to create a space station that's uh, somewhat like halfway between Earth and Mars, and have it just filled to the brim mm. with miners, and that would actually move the center of hash off of Earth, and to this point that's equidistant to Earth and Mars, uh, and then that way you would have roughly equal competition of earth finding you know a block or mars finding a block with the one caveat that most of the blocks would be found on this spaceship where you know among other things it's got to be incredibly hot there you would need you know nuclear fusion to be happening uh, happening at a, a crazy rate in order to power all these miners i mean it's just it's it's its own kettle of fish in terms of Is there anything out how that would work in your life but i think that, that that's how it would decided to talk about as bitcoin Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that like uh, uh, the interesting thing that Bitcoin does is it gives you a bit of an irreverence for uh, things that are accepted as true. And so you can take that lens and view all sorts of stuff that we accept as true um, through kind of this skeptical, well, what if it's not true uh, kind of lens. And, you know, one of the things that I was just talking to some of the folks at the company about and, you know, our CEO and I kind of uh, always like to riff on is. Uh, ancient civilization. Um, and this is like, you know, about the nerdiest thing that you can possibly talk about, right? But uh, we have been taught growing up that uh, ancient civilization began in Mesopotamia in the Fertile Crescent around like 4500 BCE, right? Everyone's learned that, you, you know, you had the Tigris and Euphrates, all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. 
there's uh, a site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe uh, that has uh, been unearthed, you know, I think in the 60s or 70s, but it was made a World Heritage Site in 2018 that dates back to 12,000 BC, right? Uh, that's like double, effectively, uh, the oldest civilization thing that we've ever found. And in this site, it is like it looks like it's a religious site. There's no uh, uh, evidence of people living there, but they have these giant monoliths, uh, like 200 ton monoliths that have been built for this religious site that just exists in the middle of a, the freaking desert, uh, and and it doesn't fit into the puzzle of what we think ancient civilization looks like at all. And then, you know, you're like, okay, well, if, if civilization was complex enough to build this crazy complex uh, religious site in the middle you know, of what's now a desert, maybe it wasn't at the time, what, like that takes real coordination, that takes tools, that takes skills, that takes laborers. I mean, it takes so much. There's, a, there's an entire history to what we actually, like how we actually got here that no one is accurately asking the questions to, to explore. And, you know, one of the things that, that immediately opens up is it's like, all right, if civilization didn't start in ancient Mesopotamia in 4500 BCE, what could we look at as like a, a, an event that is relevant towards our history? And it's like, well, the last ice age ended around 50,000 years ago. Okay. And then at the end of the last ice age, sea levels rose about 300 to 350 feet. Well, one thing that that would do immediately is you would look at the uh, Strait of Gibraltar and that would put the water level of the Atlantic Ocean below the Strait of Gibraltar. And so if that's the case, you could be looking at the Mediterranean basin and you could say, well, maybe that wasn't even filled with water at the time. Or maybe it was, you know, lakes and rivers and streams and stuff like that. Maybe there was groundwater. It could have been a full Mediterranean Sea. Who knows? All I know is that the Strait of Gibraltar that connects the Mediterranean to the Atlantic was above water. Uh, during the last ice age. And what that means is that we could actually be looking at basically all of ancient human civilizations uh, being buried underwater, uh, either in the Mediterranean Sea, it could be just in coastal areas around Africa, India, you know, who knows? But that's an entire, you know, history of us that we're not even asking the right questions to be able to unsolve, like uncover. So really, you know, all of that is probably just Graham buried under the water somewhere, and we're not even looking for it. So that's something that fascinates me. You know, I've listened to uh, I've listened to him on a couple podcasts. Uh, I think he's interesting. Um, I think that you know, I'm I'm not an expert enough to to say whether what he's talking about is accurate or inaccurate. Mm -hmm. But I think that it makes a lot of logical sense. And I feel like he's at least asking the right questions. Now we need the data. Now we need, you know, the scientists to actually go examine and, and try and, you know, figure out whether some of these ancient history kind of things that he's, he's spinning are correct. Yeah, but think, on their face, uh, they seem incredibly logical. Probably deservedly so at some points. But, like, you know, he's fighting against a, a um, bureauc bureaucracy of people that is, like, you know, a big anthropology. <laughs> and, like, he can't... Uh, he he is saying that what they are are preaching is not true, and it comes back to what you're saying about this irreverence for for um, you know the big brother. It's like I don't really care what you tell me is true. I'm going to go out and look for evidence of that. And I think that we're sort of in the we're in the price discovery phase of of ancient history. Um, and 
I wish that I had brushed up before we before we had this conversation. Yeah. But I think I, I would, I would know, have I've, to agree. I've dived into it a little bit in the past when I was younger, and there is there's little that is as interesting as as some of the um, the deductions that you can get to when you when well really the deductions that other people have said that I've heard um, from like things like Glebecki Techy or however you say it and, and all these other super super interesting um, you know anomalies yeah the reason why that was top of mind is that there was just an article that came out yesterday that found 11 other hills around Gobekli Tepe uh, that are now all being dug up as archaeological sites dated around the same time so it's like all right you know we thought Gobekli Tepe was this crazy cool thing that was just found there's 11 other sites now to to like uh, look at that all have equally important you know historical relevance uh, that you know we've just now found yesterday or at least like you know published the results from yesterday so you know that's something that really uh, is interesting to me uh, you know I would say that there's a lot of things in science. I don't want to get your guys's you know uh, uh, show at all uh, censored or anything. But like there's a lot of things in science that uh, there is a a uh, exigent um, system that that just like there there are folks who want to be right who aren't right, mm. and so they will kind of use whatever influence, power, or, you know, just, just tools or levers they can pull in order to keep their narrative true for as long as they're alive, basically. And, and so you, that's, I think, like, this archaeological thing is, is a really good example. There's stuff happening on the global health conversation that I think are very similar. And I don't, I don't have crazy, wacky uh, views on this. You don't have to in order to tell that, like, there's a lot of conversations that need to be have, had that aren't being had. Um, and so I think that's like a really, it should be a prescient thing for everyone to be thinking about, uh, when they're looking at, you know, how all of this has unfolded over the past year and a half. Uh, and, and, you know, what it, you know, uh, I'm not like a doomsayer. I'm not, you know, going to spin this up into like some crazy big thing, but it's just like, here's another example of conversations that weren't had, uh, uh, and conversations that we weren't allowed to have. Uh, in order to kind of get to whatever the the ultimate truth around what's going on and and what you know how to to uh, evaluate risk and uh, how to make just decisions about your own health. What else interests you guys? We what, are, what are the things that you guys like to talk about on the show? That's not as nearly as uh, counter culture. Yeah, not nearly as much like counter mainstream culture. Uh, a lot of crypto. We've done done a lot of crypto. A lot of diet. On the, the fitness stuff, are you guys like fans of uh, uh, Find My Fitness? And like, uh, dude, I'm reading a really interesting book right now called The Energy Formula by Sean Wells. So he talks about paleo in this too, actually. I just I got through that part. But uh, uh, so, you know, let's let's jump past uh, uh, the, the current pandemic and talk about, you know, what's going to happen mm. afterwards. I think that there's going to be this renewed focus on our bodies as, you know, machines that metabolize uh, uh, different things, right? And like ultimately all of our cells are just computers and so they can be hacked and we have RNA now that, you know, can basically create whatever we want inside of our cells. Like there is so much biomanufacturing to be done. Uh, uh, you know, most materials that we'll probably use in the future will come from uh, cells, yeast cells, protists, 
you know, whatever we're kind of engineering in order to create these these uh, building blocks. And yeah, I mean, this is just like uh, an entire field that that is like waiting to be exploded. And it'll it'll replace kind of the oil and natural gas industries that are currently kind of the the heart the the bedrock of uh, manufacturing, and uh, it'll it'll replace them with just you know reactors that are tanks. Um, it, it's it's a crazy you know shift, and like this whole pandemic has made it really obvious yeah. that, that shift is coming when we were able to manufacture vaccines within. I think it was like what forty-eight hours of, uh, yeah, it just took a of year like to isolating, that. you know, the virus and everything. We had a, a functioning vaccine. That's the same vaccine that's being put out right now. Uh, it just took a year to you know get all well, the approvals and testing and the data and really, all that really stuff. Really interesting so, yeah, stuff. That's that's a crazy forefront. One question I always have for people like yourself that are earlier in their careers are part of really interesting projects. They clearly have you know an enthusiasm for what they're doing. Uh, so you can answer this from two perspectives, but. What are like your driving goals right now with the magazine, with your career? Is it to you know, increase the probability of hyper-Bitcoinization? Is it to earn money so you can stack stats yourself because it's already inevitable and you don't have to push, uh, you don't have to get any more momentum. It already has all the acceleration it needs. Where are you kind of at with your career, the company, Bitcoin, like the big priorities for you all? Throwing the, just throwing the greatest parties for the sake of throwing the greatest parties. I know that's on the list for sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, personal goal is to, like, I just want to build things that change the world. Uh, I'm not in it to, to, you know, really make money myself. Uh, that's why, you know, I draw a, a pretty small salary relative to kind of what our opportunity and, and you know, what we're pulling in here. It's, it's, all, it's all about can we, like, literally uh, manifest hyper-Bitcoinization? Can we make Bitcoin succeed? Uh, like, what can we literally as... A bunch of idiots in Nashville, Tennessee. What can we do to make this thing work and happen? Uh, and so, you know, that meant running Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, that meant putting on the Bitcoin 2021 conference. Uh, that means uh, we have a hedge fund with you know 50 million AUM. We have uh, you know a, an app that we're building that's like a Bitcoin faucet that you know has. Uh, really cool. It's called Carrot. Uh, really cool kind of functionalities there that we're you know interplaying with our Bitcoin magazine. I mean, it's all sorts of stuff. We're we're looking maybe how do we get into the mining play? How do we get into a little bit more of uh, you know that vertical part of of the Bitcoin kind of supply chain? So, I mean, there's just we want to be part of the Bitcoin ecosystem in every function and facet that we can, where we're still utilizing our expertise. And so, uh, uh, I anticipate the the number of things that we do and the size of our company and, you know, the impact that we have on the world to grow. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be here. I'd be, you know, uh, on doing the next thing. But it's like this is a, a absolute vehicle to change the world. And so that's why I wake up every morning trying to just like, you know, push us a step further and, and you know, make us succeed. Because if we do succeed, uh, and I think, you know, Bitcoin, whether, you know, we succeed as a company or not, Bitcoin will succeed. The world will be forever changed. And humanity will be forever helped uh, by the fact that we have now a way for permissionless NGU. finance to take place in, in society. So, you know, that's the goal. Thanks, that's the vision. Go uh, and that's what I, it's been a fantastic for. episode. We really appreciate it. NGU. It's the technology, man. And that wraps up our conversation with Brandon Green. I thought he was so smart. And that's something that that's one of my takeaways, actually, is just how smart all the people that we've met from Bitcoin Magazine are. They're like not only, you know, Bitcoin bulls and just like really in your face about that, but they have really, really nuanced points on 
like global politics and like international relations, those might be the same thing, but, uh, shout out David, shout out Brandon. Cause you guys are, are really cool. Um, and then the second thing is just how much he had thought about that, that Bitcoin and space question before we asked it, he went straight to like, uh, like not only, okay, let's think through this, but like, here are the problems with that and ha and some, some proposed solutions, like having the center of hash be between Mars and earth in order to, uh, like allow for both, both, um, planets to, to mine Bitcoin and to use it as one currency. Super funny. Just how, how much he thought about that. And then the third, which I think, um, he, he said like verbatim toward the end is just generally being skeptical toward, um, commonly held truths and how like being a Bitcoiner for them is, um, sort of the first thing that they are, they sort of question the commonly held truths. And then that cascades into other areas of their life where they, where they're questioning these commonly held truths. And I think that that, um, is, and will lead to really positive outcomes for, um, everybody that sort of views life through a lens of, of like, is that true? Yes or no even though everybody around you thinks it's true and that's a hard thing to do. And I, I think that you can go overboard with it and you shouldn't do it like to every little, every little thing. But I think that, um, generally it's good. Just like Bitcoin. <laughs> I think the term for that is being red pilled. You, you, you take the red pill, then you start to see, you know, through the matrix on more than just monetary policy, but three takeaways for me. One is this is a dynamic. We explore a lot on the podcast is the career versus business owner, entrepreneur kind of dynamic. So getting a job, working for someone else, learning from them, having the reputation of the company behind you versus kind of starting on your own. I think Brandon is someone who clearly loves what he does at his company is empowered to get more done, right? Because he has the weight of the magazine behind him. He can hit up any speaker in the Bitcoin space and they'll take his calls because of his credibility being part of such a big organization. And he's gotten there much, much faster than if he was on his own. It's, you know, it's always hard to say the counterfactual, but he seems to have gotten to a good position relatively quickly and be happy. So again, it's not a black and white dynamic being an entrepreneur working for an entrepreneurial company like Bitcoin media for one example. Uh, second is kind of what you're saying about that space, how far thought out he was about space. I think that is a symptom in a good way, symptom in a good way of working at the right type of company with like a culture of no one's there. You don't just like say, well, my job's to be a journalist. So like what jobs are there in journalism? Oh, there's this Bitcoin company. It's kind of like people who are attracted to some passion and being in an environment where everyone is obsessive about one thing kind of leads to being this type of person that is constantly intellectually demanded. Cause I mean, we have a friend who works at this company in addition to Brandon. And it sounds like the office culture there is just like all day, hardcore debate about like all the nuances about Bitcoin and also all these other world issues. So if you're at a company where that's kind of like your personality type, I think that could be a really cool thing to look for. Then third thing is just get in the game. Y'all, if you're listening to this and you're not in the game yet, obviously it's not financial advice, not investment advice, not any of that. Uh, but get in the game, stack sats. You, you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. I don't know. People don't know that you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. Get, it's called a Satoshi is the, uh, the smallest increment you can buy. Consider it. 
but not investment advice. So that's all I have to say for this episode. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for listening. It is actually 4 a.m. where I am. Not even. What time is it? Oh, it's 4.15 a.m. That's just a fun fact. I just felt like sharing that. Uh, we have three episodes we released in the last three weeks, 70 plus in the past 70 weeks. I'd highly encourage you to check those out if you liked what you heard in this episode. Otherwise, we'll be back in a week or so with the next episode. See you then. Bye-bye.